I'm Mackenzie Roller, and this is Voices of Change for Change. I entered high school the year that President Trump was elected. For me, it was an awakening. I started to pay attention to social justice and human rights causes with a new level of passion because the administration seemed outwardly against many basic rights. One of these causes of interest was gun control. I was in fifth grade when a gunman opened fire at an elementary school 50 miles from my home at Sandy Hook Elementary School, killing 20 elementary school kids and six adults. I vividly remember Connecticut, along with the entire nation, grieving and mobilizing to respond. I remember thinking about my own school safety and what it would be like if my younger sister did not come home from school. It's this memory that roots my passion for gun control. Two years ago, it happened again at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, where 17 people were killed. This time, though, my generation took a stand. I attended the March for Our Lives protest in Hartford that year, surrounded by peers and listening to people my own age speak out about the changes they were demanding for our nation. In those moments, my passion for activism and social change really began to take form. March for Our Lives grasped the attention of the entire nation, engaging students around the country, starting a campaign to vote NRA-backed candidates out of office and pass common-sense gun laws in Florida. I wanted to learn how and why March for Our Lives was so successful. Why had it taken so long for meaningful action to take place? It had been over five years since the Sandy Hook school shooting and countless other mass shootings had occurred as well. I started questioning, what makes people take action? What makes the government listen? How do we create effective and lasting social change? I'm Mackenzie Roller, I'm 18, and a senior at Miss Porter's School in Farmington, Connecticut. This podcast is the culmination of my senior capstone project, working to answer the question, how can we create effective social change? I've defined social change as a push by an individual, group, or organization to make a difference in the way that people interact with each other, institutions, and or society at large. In these conversations, you'll hear the sound of social change as it looks to lawyers, activists, and leaders of the social change sector. This is Voices of Change for Change. On Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Ms. Porters brought Niall Fort, an activist, minister, and scholar, to speak. He held the auditorium's attention as he spoke with ease, eloquence, and passion. Fort is currently studying at Princeton University as a PhD candidate in both religion and interdisciplinary humanities, 
with a concentration in African-American studies. One of his first moments of awakening and involvement in activism followed the shooting of Michael Brown, an unarmed black man shot by a white police officer, Darren Wilson, in Ferguson, Missouri. Fort said, quote, Anger drew me to Ferguson. I really didn't know what to do with my body. That's what drove me to Ferguson, but that's not what kept me in Ferguson. It was the joy. It was the community. End quote. There, he helped develop the Movement for Black Lives, and in the following years, he has worked within the United States as well as abroad to improve race relations. Fort describes his introduction to activism as being a moment in his first semester of seminary. His professor arranged a call with Mumia Abu-Jamal, a political prisoner. Abu-Jamal was convicted of killing a white police officer in Philadelphia in 1981, lacking any legitimate evidence. He was sentenced to death in 1982. A movement across the world was calling for his release as the case had been pushed unjustly through the court system. This is where we started our conversation. Mumia had been on death row for almost 30 years at this point. This is longer than I've been alive. And he called into our class. He gave basically like a 10-minute speech. And he was just talking about not his case, which I found very interesting. But the entire time he talked about freedom and justice and movements for social change and the fact that we have the capacity to transform the world if we were willing to struggle for it. And so I remember being in my seat like, wow, I was like, how does a person who's been trapped in a six by 10 foot cage, essentially, um, for 30 years, have the not just brilliance, but the compassion that I heard in his voice And not to romanticize, but it literally changed my life. Mumia was taken off of death row because the courts ruled that his case was unconstitutional. But instead of giving him another trial, they gave him life in prison. Two weeks later, I went to my first protest and I was just reveling in protest. I'd never been to one and I was like, wow, like... People who don't know each other coming together to uh, fight for a different kind of world, a different kind of society. It just made me come alive. So I spent the next about three years doing a variety of different kinds of activist efforts. And then I graduated from that master's program. And a few months later, uh, Darren Wilson, white police officer in Ferguson, uh, killed Michael Brown. So I ended up going to Ferguson and I've been doing social movement work ever since. And so as you've become like more involved in social movements and social change, I was wondering if you could give what you think the definition of social change is. How do you think that you would define social change? Mm. So I, I try to stay away from definitions, <laughs> mainly because they freeze a very messy experience into some kind of abstract category. But what I will say instead of define, describe. So for me, social movements are the, these, they're these moments where because of a particular set 
of injustices or systems of violence, uh, ordinary people end up coming together to fight those systems of injustice and to fight for a different kind of world together, a different kind of society. And those social movements can take different forms depending on the different system of violence that the protesters and activists and ordinary everyday people who care uh, about what's happening in the world uh, end up sort of fighting against. And, and I think that's fascinating. I think what's also fascinating is when we have social movements in coalition with one another. So, for example, uh, you have some folks that are fighting environmental devastation and you have some folks fighting against racial injustice. And now we have a movement that's looking at something like environmental racism. I think social movements uh, kind of take these organic forms when done well that essentially challenge the status quo uh, and, and, and try to create a vision for a different kind of society. And then the last part was very important, which is actually struggle to get that society to make it. And so that's one of the fundamental differences between some social justice oriented academics who may be able to describe human suffering, but don't necessarily talk about what we need to do to in that suffering. So when we're talking about social change and a group of people fighting against an institutional or systematic oppression, what makes a movement successful and what makes social change possible, in your opinion? So I think if we were to judge social movements solely on whether the movement achieved its stated goals, mm -hmm. um, we would have to admit that virtually every social movement essentially failed. <laughs> Um, so, for example, the abolitionist movement was able to end formal slavery, but then that uh, institution of slavery shape-shifted into convict leasing and into other systems of racial domination. But what social movements, I think, do very well is they provide alternate visions of the world. And I would say something like what Robin D.G. Kelly, my favorite historian, says in his book, freedom dreams, the black radical tradition. He says that another way that we probably should think about social movements is by judging them based off the visions themselves, like the visions that they offer for a different kind of society. I think another part is what makes a social movement successful is when everyone has a role to play. And so there's a language of a kind of vanguard, like you have a small group of people who sort of understand everything uh, in terms of what the problems are and know exactly how to fix them. And I think those types of movements are really narrow and they can actually uh, reinforce some of the systems that we want to resist, meaning that a small group of people who see themselves as a kind of activist elite <laughs> sort of make decisions for the rest of us. I think successful social movements uh, make sure that we're not replicating the hierarchy of the status quo, but we're actually creating democratic, horizontal movements that allow everyone, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, regardless of your sexuality, regardless of what language you speak, that gives everyone who's interested in social change and compassionate about social justice an opportunity for to participate. Mm -hmm. I think that's another important factor. Yeah. And so my next question would be, there's a video that I found about Ferguson where you say that 
Dr. Martin Luther King had the television, but we have Twitter. And so how has social media changed the way that social change and movements occur? Yeah, I think that it's done some good and it's done some bad. <laughs> so I think the good part is that it's in certain ways democratized voices. Social media gives just platforms to so many more people to express their views, their feelings, to debate and to fight for uh, what they believe in. I think it's also good that it can spread information rapidly. So for example, when we were in Ferguson, we learned about what's happening in Ferguson mainly through social media, through Twitter. We were like, oh, there's a march happening over here. Let's go join it. At the same time, one of the problems with social media is that it can breed a culture of competition of rivalry and of a kind of immature sense of history. Meaning if you're learning solely through memes and through uh, 140 word characters, then you're going to have a kind of narrow understanding of social movement history, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the way that I talk about social media now is that social media is the hammer, not the house. And so if it's the hammer, not the house, the question becomes, what are we using it to build? Are you using it to build a personal career and fame? Or are you building, using it to build a democratic social movement that's rooted in a commitment to, uh, to fundamental transformation, not just tinkering with the system? Yeah, I like that analogy a lot. Um, and there's an interview where you talk about being able to talk to people about their values in a way that it doesn't get overwhelmed by like the political association with the conversation that you're having. And in a time when our country is so divided, I was wondering if you could speak to how to have those like civil discourse conversations where people are actually able to understand what the other side is trying to do in a respectful way that actually creates like the change we're looking for. Sure, yeah. So I think that social movements and community-based organizing, political struggle, I think that it doesn't only give us the chance to change the world, but it gives us a chance to transform ourselves. I think that's really important, and I think that the religious right should not have a monopoly on values. And so one thing that my work is about is actually showing that they do not have a monopoly on that and sort of reviving a tradition, not just a Christian tradition, but a faith-based tradition of organizing and of social movement, but also even beyond the sort of faith context, just thinking about what it means for us to become better people. So I don't think that we can fundamentally change the world without fundamentally changing ourselves. And I don't think that we can fundamentally change ourselves without fundamentally changing the world. France Fanon says this in his classic text, The Wretched of the Earth. He says, decolonization of society requires us to also decolonize our minds. Um, and so I think value talk is important because it gives us a language to talk about what kind of human beings do we want to be. A part of why we want to end racism is because it distorts the best of what it means to be human patriarchy distorts the best of what it means to be human. And so I want to be a part of social movements that make me a better person and not just make schools better and hospitals better. Uh, but in order to do that, we have to make the world better too. The last thing I'll say about this is that there's a lot of meanness even on the left. <laughs> uh, 
some activists can be very mean and they can be very mean spirited. Now, this is not to say that you can't be militant uh, and and a good person because you can. But that militant is different from meanness. And so I think it's really important if we're talking about uh, fighting systems of violence, that we don't replicate those systems of violence when we talk to one another. And I would hope that a part of what the heart of democracy is about is about being able to dialogue and debate each other around ideas in a way that doesn't dispose of each other. The only thing we need to dispose of is disposability itself. So we throw people away just like capitalism does. (laughs) We throw people away just like the criminal justice system does. And so while we're saying that we're fighting for a different world, we're actually regurgitating uh, the very habits of the status quo. And so values talk for me allows for me to engage with someone who I may not agree with in a way that actually values them in a society that devalues pretty much everyone but the 1%. Yeah. If you had the chance to speak to all of the young activists in the world who are so passionate about the changes they want to see, what advice would you give them as to how to make that change? So there's a phrase that we're using now to describe what it means to be conscious politically. And you, you've heard of it. It's called stay woke. And um, I think that's cool. I think being woke is very important. Um, you know, part of what the American dream does is it keeps us asleep. <laughs> that's why they call it a dream, uh, because it's intended to keep us asleep. So I think staying woke is a very important first step. But I think that it's not enough. I think we have to go further than just staying woke. We have to go beyond just knowing what's wrong with the world and begin to ask ourselves, what do we want in the world? So not just what we are against, but what are we for? And then, of course, we have to fight for it. (laughs) So what I always say is, yes, stay woke, but eventually make sure you get out of bed. And maybe make it to the kitchen. And then eventually make sure you step outside the house. Because that's where we're ultimately going to decide what kind of world we're going to live in. Not just by staying woke, but by going outside, joining with other people, and deciding what are we willing to fight for. So specifically for certain, like students who go to really elite schools, we can sort of get really excited that we know a lot of things or we know what's wrong with the world. But I would say we have to go further and begin to sort of struggle together and do so in a way that goes far beyond what usually the classroom teaches us. You know, social movements become our classroom. And and a big part of the lesson we learn is that it's not enough just to know stuff. You got to fight for what you know and what you want. As we close here, hold on to that last thought. Fort asked us to judge movements by the vision that they offer for the world. When you get out of bed and step outside of your house, what world do you imagine? What society do you see? Now, how are you going to fight for that future?
Niall Fort is an activist, minister, and scholar at Princeton University. This episode was written and produced by me, Mackenzie Roller, with editing help from Ali Oshinsky. The music is by Sound of Picture. Special thanks to Sophie Paris, the Global Studies cohort, my family, and the rest of the Capstone students. Next time on Voices of Change for Change, we will explore how people go about creating their visions of the world. The nonprofit sector is one of the systems that attempts to create change. But if there are over 1.5 million nonprofits in the United States alone, why aren't we living in the world that they are imagining? In my next conversation, we will dissect the nonprofit and social change sector with Kat Lindroth. This is Voices of Change for Change. I'm Mackenzie Roller. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.